box. Here's a quote from our next guest. Every section of the grocery store is impacted by inflation. There's not one single section that has not been impacted. Typically, you talk about cauliflower or beef or tomatoes. This year, it's different products right across the board. A quote from Sylvain Charlebois, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Sylvain is Canada's food professor. Good morning, sir, and welcome back. Good morning. It's good to have you with us, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist. All it takes is a, is a shopping cart, Sylvain, and a trip to the grocery store to know that pretty much, as you say, everything is up. What are the factors driving such a, a, across-the-board increases? <laughs> Where do we start? Uh, well, first of all, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that food inflation is a problem in Canada. There's uh, different indicators telling us that. Uh, when we look at flyers, when you look at prices, actual prices in, in the store, um, prices are going up significantly. Uh, StatsCan's uh, numbers are telling us that the food inflation rate is at about 2.7% year-to-year in August. Uh, we believe it's way more than that, um, especially at the meat counter. Uh, meat has been impacted by higher grain prices. It's actually costing more to feed cattle. Mm-hmm. It's costing more for processors to buy the ingredients, so that's impacting the center of the store. So grains uh, futures are one factor. Um, another factor is labor costs. Uh, we've been talking about labor shortages for quite some time. Sure well, have. Guess what? <laughs> Companies have to pay their employees more to keep them. And uh, when you're in a high-volume, low-margin environment like uh, like food, uh, at some point, something's got to give. So prices are being adjusted accordingly. And, and, and the last factor, I think, which uh, is also becoming a problem is, uh, is transportation, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's on water uh, or land-based. Uh, like maritime uh, logistics are probably three, four times more expensive than last year. And uh, on land, uh, truckers are being paid more and also oil. Uh, if you remember, Fuel in costs. May of 2020, mm-hmm. <laughs> a barrel of oil was at minus $37. Now it's over $70. That's right. So that's a huge increase, uh, and uh, obviously energy costs are going up, which is making things more costly to move things around. Interesting. There's a piece in the paper today here in B.C., Sylvain. Some of the turkey farmers in our province are hopeful, for example, and Thanksgiving is not far away. They're hopeful. Last year, they had a good year because, of course, we were all pretty much confined to quarters, and so we bought a lot of turkeys, and and they did well. Uh, They're hopeful that they'll be having a repeat that of of last year, but again, they're saying the turkey farmers here in B.C. are saying, we're only saying we're hoping to sell more turkeys than we or at least as many as we did last year, but we're not at all sure we will because prices have gone up. Yeah, prices have gone up, but I wouldn't be worried too much uh, about uh, turkey farmers or poultry farmers because they, they, they do operate under supply management, so mm-hmm. they get compensated no matter what happens to the market. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't cry, but it's, it's certainly uh, with, with pork and cattle and beef, it's a different story. It's a free market, so if they don't sell... They don't make money. Um, with poultry, it's a bit different. The, the, the thing about turkey for Thanksgiving, uh, which is 
next week. Yeah. Uh, last year, turkey sales were were interesting, but a lot of smaller turkeys were sold. This year, we're expecting larger turkeys to be sold because we are expecting more people to host. That's true. Compared to last year, yeah. Yeah, greater uh, group gatherings allowed. That's but, right. Yeah, you we're talking, as you said, and uh, the quote that I attributed to you uh, off the beginning was, every section of the grocery store has been affected. There, There isn't one area that we've seen in, 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 in the store in which prices have uh, not increased. And so... Uh, I would, I'm thinking that the supply issue is, is a big contributor to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like every year, there's always a story related to a commodity or a section of the grocery store. Yeah. It can be meat, mm-hmm. you know, the cauliflower crisis a couple of years ago. And, uh, I mean, there are stories like that once in a while to, to get people's attention. This year, <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. You can't protect yourself. And, uh What's what's really interesting, I think, is that I know a lot of people that everyone's knee-jerk reaction to protect themselves from inflation would be to buy in bulk, buy as much as you can, mm-hmm. even hoard. We saw that last year with the pandemic. If you want to save money, uh, apl- apply the just-in-time strategy. Buy at the very last minute. Why? It's pretty simple. There are more and more enjoy tonight sales across the country. More grocers are actually trying to reduce waste, and they're also offering consumers a chance to save 25, sometimes even 50% on some pieces of meat. Yes, mm-hmm. freshness may not be there as much. Yes, I, I, I admit. However, if you really want to save money, you should buy your stuff at the very last minute, not weeks ahead of time right interesting because the tendency you're absolutely right it's almost counterintuitive because you're right the tendency your first reaction is whoa let's start stocking up let's fill that pantry right to the ceiling not necessarily the the most economical approach exactly and 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 right now uh, our food economics are really rewarding those who are patient Uh, we'll visit a few stores you walk into a store and there'll be like a, 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 there'll be shelves with discounted products mm-hmm. and 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 a few years ago these shelves were in some obscure part of the grocery store and they were hard to find nowadays they actually showcase uh, discounted products That's and they right. don't even advertise them cuz they don't have time That's so right. if you actually take the time to visit a few locations if you have the time it'll be worth it so your survey, and this is just out a few days ago, found that 86% of all of us believe food prices are higher than six months ago. And notably, baby boomers, 93% of baby boomers noticed the, this trend even more so than other sectors of the population. Could that be simply because that uh, group is a little more mindful of their expense realities? That's an interesting one. Yeah, boomers, Xers. They're noticing that, that prices are higher. In, in my view, I think the younger generations are also noticing, but they may not be uh, bothered as much. You see, 
um, we boomers and Xers were spoiled. I mean, we went through the eighties and nineties, and 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 food was just given away. It was mm-hmm. really cheap. Yep, food was cheap. We were buying calories. We thought cheese whiz was food, <laughs> <laughs> and it was just at different time, and and we didn't realize it, but we were spoiled, and to a certain extent. We're still spoiled. I mean, in terms of food affordability, Canada ranks number 18th in the world. So we're not doing too badly. Mm -hmm. But the younger generations, we believe, based on the data that we have, um, are more, I would say, aware and appreciative of what is making food more expensive. Right. And so as a result, we are shifting our, our consumption behaviors to a certain extent. Are some of the name brands taking a hit in, in favor of literally no-name alternatives? Yeah, absolutely. So 42% of Canadians are actually looking more often uh, for private labels or house brands. Uh, uh, it's the phenomenon we call trading down. So instead of buying national brands, they'll be looking for uh, private labels, which is why we believe, and that's in the aftermath of the pandemic, we are expecting more house brands to, to be sold out there in, in several stores. And, and we know them. I mean, President's Choice is one of them. Sure. No name, mm-hmm. uh, compliments, yep. uh, uh, Kirkland. I mean, all these, uh, these house brands are likely going to become more popular. Uh, there's no question about it, and that's simply again, it's, it's economic. So people are people are are money loyal rather than brand loyal. For example, if Coke is, is cheaper this week than Pepsi, you're buying Coke, or vice versa. Doesn't really matter. It's the lower price you're after, right? Exactly. Flyers are becoming more popular compared to last year. More than forty percent of Canadians are actually using or consulting flyers. They're looking at them much more seriously. They're committed to them. Coupons. Uh, in fact, it's in BC where we see the highest increase, uh, the highest percentage of consumers using coupons compared to last year. More more often compared to last year. So. Uh, British Columbians are, 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 are better tooled, I guess, and better informed uh, to, to save some money here and there. What about loyalty programs, you know, points and air miles and things like that? As, sometimes they're attractive, but typically they, they go to, uh, they belong or they're attached to uh, stores or retails that are, uh, tend to be a little more expensive. Are they still popular? They are. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I would say, that grocers are 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 making a point uh, to uh, to build loyalty because uh, they know that consumers frugal consumers aren't necessarily loyal mm-hmm. <laughs> because they'll shop around. Of That's course. right. We're we're out there to save some money. So if they if they want us to visit their shop more often. Well, they have to reward us for that, and the best way to do it is is with loyalty programs. Indeed. Sylvain, where can our listeners this morning find your most recent survey online? All our surveys are available for free, English and French, and all you need to do is to Google AgriFood Analytics lab dalhousie university and you'll end up on our website excellent Uh, the director of the agri-food analytics lab at dalhousie university in halifax professor sylvain charlebois merci monsieur it's always a treat to have you on board à la prochaine have a good weekend sylvain charlebois in halifax 
And on this first Saturday morning of October, welcome. It's nice to have you with us. I'm Sterling Fox. Phil Figueroa is driving. Jonathan Chung in the wings. And our next guest is going to join us to talk about something the provincial government wants us all to talk about. They're currently considering reforms to the Police Act. And towns and cities and municipalities all over British Columbia are responding with all sorts of public meetings and gatherings, gathering input from citizens and voters. In New Westminster, this coming Tuesday night, one of the city councillors, Nadine Nakagawa, will host a live stream discussion on creating a community of care. More on policing reform and community crisis care. Councillor Nakagawa is with us this morning to talk about her meeting and police reform in general. Councillor, good morning. Good morning to you as well. It's good to have you with us, Nadine. Thank you for getting up early to do this. Let's talk to us about what we what we mean, because uh, in the paper, the New Westminster Record, where we saw this originally, it did define the city of New Westminster approach to police form, and there are four components to that. Can you talk about that, Nadine, first, and then we'll talk about what else may be beyond that? Yeah, so back in April, we put forward a response uh, to the Special Committee on Reforming the B.C. Police Act. And they had asked us to focus on the Police Act, but instead what we decided to talk about was what we were seeing and needing in our community. And really, the number one thing there was a a different model of crisis response. So when we call 911, often we are just sent police, sometimes fire. When In reality, often those calls are based on health needs, mental health needs. Um, They're related to poverty or homelessness. So we really need appropriate workers to respond to that and and that's not police fire or or city bylaw Mm -hmm. so that was really the biggest part of it um but we also talked about the lack of data in those calls that you know in the city of new west the police have independently started trying to track what is a mental health call and they're finding that they're responding to four calls a day on average but we don't have any really good data around that and we don't have any good disaggregated data which is about a deeper need whether the cultural needs whether the language needs etc so that's the other piece of it We talked about centering the voices of those who are most negatively impacted. So people who are um, have police often called on them when that's not the response that's needed. And then as well, we talked about reforming the way that police boards are appointed. We know that they're mostly appointed by the provincial government. They're pretty invisible to the community. People don't know who they are. They don't know how to contact them. Really, I think that they need to be more accountable and they need to work more in collaboration and cooperation with the elected representatives. Yeah, and it would be, uh, as uh, the police board, as you say, quite accurately, is uh, generally appointed by the province. And, and typically, of course, they would there would be a residency requirement, Nadine, but not much else beyond that in terms of accountability, certainly, answerability to the folks that uh, you're a member of the police board. Yeah, that's right. And, and a lot of the members of our police board, uh, or some of them historically have not been residents, they might have some expertise in policing, like they might be criminology professors. Mm-hmm. But what we really know is that that doesn't represent the community at large, that we probably need more community voices on there. The community needs to know what they're up to, how they can speak to them. Um, and when we talk about the city budget, policing is a huge, huge part of city budgets. Um, that's basically given to the to the city councils, and we just kind of accept them. Um, when in reality that should be done more in collaboration and communication. So City of New West has extensive budget 
um, engagement process to find out what our residents care about. Right. But that piece is sort of excluded from it because that's not something that we're responsible for. Right. But this, you know, as as I, we mentioned at the beginning of the of the conversation, the the provincial government is asking for public submissions because they are going to reform the police act. Now, when we talk about reforming the police act here in British Columbia, Canada, we're not talking about we're not having the same conversation, Nadine, that they are in jurisdictions like Minneapolis and other places in America, where we're reforming the police uh, uh, widely includes defunding the police. That's not that's not part of the conversation in Canada, is it? I think the bigger, I mean, people are having that conversation in Canada, but the bigger conversation that I'm hearing is that police are often forced to respond to calls that are outside of their jurisdiction. Yes. You know, they are not mental health workers, nor should they be. That's not the role of law enforcement. And so if they're responding to that number of calls that are out their jurisdiction, we really need to be responding with the right responses. So that could be a lot of different things, right? That might be a housing outreach worker. That might be a counselor or a mental health support worker. It might be an elder for communities that have a high Indigenous population. Mm-hmm, yes. So those are the appropriate responses. So I think we're really talking about moving to having an appropriate response, whereas cities right now are responding with the only service that, that we have. And more often than that, no, that's police. Right. So, and as you say, the, the cops in New West are telling you already that they're responding up to four mental health calls a day, that they're ill-equipped to deal with, but nonetheless, they're in uniform and they have to answer and off they go. So how would you accommodate this? Would you be in a situation to adjust the police budget so that you're not taking uniforms off the street, but rather you're, you're, you're in a position where you can do ride-alongs with the personnel that are specific to needs in the community? Well, what we're, what we're proposing in the city of New West is we would like to be a pilot project. So we have city police who are, who are completely on board with this city of New West police. Um, and we want to work with the province and Fraser Health to develop a pilot model that would be a different model. It would be community-based, and it would really be responding with those right services so that police wouldn't have to respond at all. If somebody is having a mental health crisis, there's no reason whatsoever for police to respond. That's a health care issue, not a law enforcement if- issue. So it wouldn't even be a matter of having a ride-along, per se. It would be responding, having those services available. The difficulty, of course, is that health care is not within city jurisdiction. Yeah. So we really need the province and, and Fraser Health to be on board with us and, and be active participants at that table. Well, it's interesting that you would come up with a pilot project. I hope that there's some appetite in Victoria for this. Are you aware, for example, of, of uh, how receptive the province might be to uh, uh, New Westminster being the guinea pig on this application or reapplication of police funding? Mm-hmm. So we've talked to the province, we've talked to various ministers about this. We're also in conversation with other jurisdictions about this because there's a lot, as you could imagine, many cities actually have a, a really big interest in right, this right now. We're seeing increasing rates of homelessness in our communities because of the pandemic, but also because of the housing crisis as well. And so a lot of other cities are quite keen on this as well. So we're actually sure. talking with all of them. Because what I personally think would work wonderfully is if we had a couple of different pilots throughout the province, because what's true in New Westminster, we're a very urban, very built out city with a lot of uh, nonprofit organizations and community support. Mm -hmm. That might not be true for, let's say, Smithers, for example. And so what's true in New West 
we can't we can't just take that and apply that to Smithers. So it would be wonderful to have a, a different mix of municipalities piloting a, a project that works in their community and then see if that's something that we could roll out right across the province. And uh, as far as support from the community of New Westminster, where you're hoping to originate this pilot project, what are you hearing from folks who vote for you? Well, we're hearing a lot in the community about the increasing rate of homelessness, and and that is not unique to New West. That is in every community across the country, mm-hmm. across the province that I'm talking to, they are seeing drastic increases in homelessness. And New Westminster is a very caring, connected community. We care about our neighbors. We don't want to see people sleeping on the streets. So I hear a lot about the need for increased homelessness or home housing services, support services for folks. Um, so we're seeing that. I hear a lot of people with significant concerns about mental health services right now that, you know, everybody I think is, is having more mental health um, issues than they were before because we've been isolated and alone, very stressed out during the pandemic. You bet. So I think we're seeing very much that there's a lot of folks in our community who are going to need more mental health services now and in the future. Um, and we're hearing from the local businesses as well that a lot of our local businesses, again, try and respond to people who might be sleeping in their doorways mm-hmm. compassionately. But the fact is, is that, you know, there's no services to call for them. We, we've had our bylaw officers in the city of New West have said that they've had a 93% increase in calls from local businesses and community members that are specifically rated, related to homelessness and poverty. So again, bylaw officers are not the right response to homelessness. Housing is the right response to homelessness. So I, I think broadly we are hearing that people in our community are supportive of this idea. They want a system-based solution. They don't want to sort of just tinker on the edges. They want us to get to the root causes of this. And that's what we're talking about with our pilot model. Yeah, uh, Kessler, I need to take a break here. But just before we do, this is going to involve considerable rejigging of the budget. Is there an appetite for that? You're talking about the the support and the, the positive vibes you're getting from the community of New Westminster with respect to changes to policing and the way the police at, at provide services to the community and looking for additional service providers to be included in that. It's going to cost money. Now, again, once we come down to, uh, and it's not about defunding the police, it's about rejigging the police budget. Is there room for all of this? Well, right now, the conversation isn't even about reallocating money from the police budget. We're really in conversation with the province to see, because again, healthcare services and housing is their jurisdiction. Sure. Will they join us and add? Before we consider taking anything away, let's consider adding and seeing what our actual needs are, collecting some data on that, and then finding out where we are. So we're really at the preliminary steps of it. Joined by Councillor Nadine, Nadine rather, Nakagawa from New Westminster, uh, part of the committee the Special Committee on Reforming the Police Act for the City of New Westminster. Phone lines are open. Bill's in Victoria. He's going to join us. Uh, the mailbox, I should also let you know, is always open. It's sterling at cknw.com. Councillor, let's uh, check in with Bill in Victoria. Bill, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I believe that uh, it's not quite as simple as, as uh, this person makes out it to be. What they did in Portland years ago is when they went up to a person on the street, because who can determine whether it's a crime situation, a mentally ill situation, or it's a, fi- it's a person that's fine that can actually work. Um, so what they did is they actually had a van that went around, and they had the qualified people in there with the police, and they determined, oh, this person's mentally right. ill, off to the hospital to get, get help. Uh, this person is uh, has a long record. It's crime. Right. They're uh, 
they're, uh, they pretend that they're mentally ill. They're not. They should go to jail. And the other one, which nobody ever talks about, these counselors, nobody in the government talks about, if people are fine and they're capable, then they should be offered a job and get off welfare and you show up Monday morning and get to work. Well, I don't know about that last part, but Nadine, the, the notion of going around in a van with a group of specialists is, I think, very close to what you're talking about in terms of how you would uh, change the current regime in, in terms of the community and police uh, relationship. Is that not the case? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they're in a van or if they're well, I, walking. I know, but you but, know what I mean. I mean yeah, I, I think that's, that's exactly the point. But I think the idea that assuming that people are engaging in criminal activity is, is just simply incorrect. Um, that mental illness is not a criminal offense. And a lot of these sort of nuisance behaviors or, or crime, you know, crimes of poverty or desperation actually would be better served by addressing the person's need rather than putting in the criminal justice system, which I will note is exceedingly expensive for for people who pay for it. Just to follow um, up on Bill's point, though, and this is a thanks for the email. This is, I think, from North Vancouver. Steve says, sometimes uh, a mental health case involves violent behavior. We can't risk putting a social worker in a violent situation. We need the police. Well, I, I hate to tell this person, but actually there's a lot of social workers, nurses and healthcare workers who work with mentally ill people all the time. Mm-hmm. And the fact actually is this is a pervasive troubling myth is that people who are mentally ill are more at risk of violence than they are perpetrators of violence. And this is a pervasive myth that is kept on by Hollywood and by people keeping repeating it. But it's really important that we counter that idea that people who are mentally ill are not a risk to people. Um, In fact, having somebody show up with with weapons actually, I think, puts everybody at greater risk. So let's have the proper workers who actually know how to work with folks with mental illness show up and respond to that rather than uh, treating people like mental illness is dangerous. Well, as long, as long as we're having a province-wide discussion about this whole issue, Nadine, <laughs> is it not fair to ask the province, because you're talking about readjustments of budgets, whether it's municipal or provincial, um, and in some case federal funding is involved too, but why not talk to the province about some kind of uh, consideration for the reopening of provincial facilities Facilities for people who have uh, mental problems. We basically, 25 years ago, closed them all out and turfed all those people out on the streets. Many of them are still there, still trying to figure it all out. What about an appetite at the provincial level for some restoration of those provincial facilities? Uh, if you're talking about um, facilities like Riverview, I absolutely don't support that. That's essentially incarceration for mental illness. So you're right that we turf people out on the street with no support. What we're talking about is properly supporting them there, as they always should have been in the first place. We shouldn't leave people who are mentally ill to languish on the streets or to be locked up in jails. We know that mental people with mental illness are overrepresented in jails. We should actually be allowing them to have the health care, housing and support services that they need in community. There's tons of surveys that actually show that that's the best response. We're just not doing it. Okay, so now in the case of, of the new Westminster, how then would you redefine the police role in the community to, uh, to reflect the need for more partnership in, in their, their work? Well, I think this is an active conversation as we build the model with police, but also with the healthcare and support workers who would be responding to those calls, that what would then trigger law enforcement to come. But I think we have to be really clear in our minds and in, our, in the model that we create about what actually requires a law enforcement response. 
and what actually requires a healthcare or services or support response. Mm-hmm. I often, I also feel that it's really important to note that it, as we're seeing crimes of desperation and poverty, if we actually provide people with the services that they need, we would then essentially see those those um, those crimes decrease. And I know a lot of people might say that's naive or idealistic, but the fact is is that if you are homeless on the street, you don't have food, you don't have housing, then you're in a, you don't even have your basic human needs met. So let's meet those human needs and then see where we're at. So uh, is uh, I guess though, in terms of real money, is some of the the housing requirements for some of those people going to come out of the police budget? Uh, no, we're asking the province because that's actually the jurisdiction of the province. They should be providing housing through BC Housing. So that's why we're asking them to come to the table is that, you know, housing doesn't pop up like mushrooms. It, it takes a long time to build. So, uh, but we, we need bigger investments in, in housing and support services so that people can actually be housed. What do the police say about all of this, Nadine, as you uh, look around it? And you said the police are, are, are basically on side with a lot of the ideas, but of course, they're uh, they're always looking for new ways to get community support what do they what do they say about some of the suggestions for reforming themselves yeah i mean a lot of the reform work actually lies within the police board because city councils don't direct operations of of police right uh, which a lot of people don't know actually um but what we are hearing from police in general is that they agree that they should not be responding to these calls that are based on mental illness or on poverty and in fact it's really quite horrible for them to respond because there's not services to refer those folks Mm. to so they respond and there's really nothing to be done so it's it's very demoralizing i think for a lot of service providers in our community whether it's fire police bylaws local businesses or just community members that you want to help somebody and there's nowhere to send them for help and so we're really talking about filling that need Talk to us a little bit. I'm going to get a couple of seconds left here. Remind us of your online roundtable meeting this coming Tuesday. Do you have to be a new Westminster person to tune in, or can you just jump in anyway? It's, it's on Facebook Live, so anyone can join us. Perfect. Um, you can submit questions to us via nwmatters at newwest.ca, and we'll have a couple different diverse. Um, a couple different service providers there. We have Linda Fletcher-Gordon from Purpose Society, and Purpose Society provides a lot of different types of services in our community. And so she'll be talking about what she's seeing in the community and what the need is. And then we have Esther Say from Umbrella Multicultural Health Co-op. So we can talk a little bit about the needs of newcomers and the different cultural considerations. And yeah, anyone can join and listen. Anyone can take part and submit questions. And yeah, I really look forward to having the conversation with the community. That's this coming Tuesday, October 5th at 6.30 p.m. And where will they find it? And they will find it on the city's Facebook page. City of New Westminster Facebook page. Send your questions in advance to nwmatters at newwestcity.ca. Well, on this very first Saturday of October, it is the day of the Great Pumpkin Way Off. Yes, giant pumpkin growers from B.C. and all over the Pacific Northwest will converge today to enter B.C.'s Giant Pumpkin Way Off event. It happens at the Krause Berry Farms and Estate Winery in Langley. And one of the participants hoping to bring home some hardware is pumpkin grower Jeff Peltier, who joins us this morning on the line. Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Jeff. Now, tell us uh, when uh, you're. Uh, you have you had your pumpkin moved uh, to Langley already? Your timing is perfect. We actually have about 15 people in the yard right now. We've got the pumpkin strapped up to a pumpkin lifting ring, and Phil's Crane Service is here to move it in the next so two minutes or so. Fantastic. So Phil's Crane Service is going to boost uh, what 
how many pound pumpkin onto the back of a truck to take to Langley? We're thinking it's going to be 1,300 pounds. Wow. How long does it take to grow a, a pumpkin that size, Jeff? So normally you would start the feed sometime around the third week of April uh, and then put it in the ground usually first week of May. And the fruit usually gets pollinated around July 1st. This one was pollinated July 4th. So you think uh, a 1,300-pound fruit grew in basically 90 days. That's amazing. What sort of, uh, um, do you feed these as special fertilizer or uh, some special grow stuff? Or what's the practice? Well, it's it's interesting. I I grow all organically. So great, healthy soil is the first start. So we got that from uh, our friends over at the artisan uh, garden group and then uh npk industries npk canada which is a a fertilizer company that actually started for the organic cannabis industry uh their their products actually work really well for giant pumpkins so that's that's what i've used okay and so now i'm just looking at there is a a website by the way friends called giantpumpkinsbc.com and jeff of course you're you're mentioned on there more than once uh, and it talks about some of these pumpkins that have well for example the last time they had this giant pumpkin way off event was a couple of years ago because of course last year nothing happened we were all confined to quarters but the last time they did this jeff was two years ago and nearly four thousand people showed up yes that's correct it was a, it's a great event i mean uh of course you know it's an outdoor event crossberry farms is just a great facility and it's rare to see so many giant pumpkins in one place so super cool photo opportunities and uh it's great to to, to get people interested in in the hobby as well and that's that's what we're trying to do okay so now i'm looking at some of the weights that have won in previous years the heaviest one in 2019 1200 yeah 1213 pounds but there was an even bigger one the year before 1436 pounds was the the uh scott carley grew that one and it was at first place that's an enormous plant yeah in fact scott carley uh, holds the current bc record which was broken in 2017 at 1543 pounds but today if anyone's coming out we're thinking dave chan of richmond is going to break the bc record with a pumpkin that we think is probably close to 1700 pounds my gosh and yours you said it's just loading onto the truck right now is you say what about 1300 you're thinking I think so, yeah. It'll be my best one. My, my current uh, personal best is 1,167 pounds. So anything over that, and I'm happy. Well, no kidding. So besides incredible bragging rights, Jeff, uh, what uh, what sort of trophies or prizing is there for you squash growers? Yeah, so for our, our, uh, our competition this year, it's the first year we get a major corporate sponsor. So Urban Roots Garden Markets, which had 23 garden uh, markets pop up throughout the Lower Mainland this year, they've become our sponsor, and they're going to be paying the top pumpkin $1 per pound as the prize. Oh, hey. And then we have a few other great sponsors like the Sheridan Wall Center and Georgian Court and NPK Industries. And uh, there's a few lower categories that are still kind of interesting. One is called the Howard Dill Award. And uh, giant pumpkins are actually a Canadian hobby. Howard Dill is from Windsor, Nova Scotia, and he's the one who created the seed lineage that creates these giants. They're all called Atlantic Giants. Oh, okay. And uh, so the Howard Dill Award is given to the prettiest pumpkin, and that's going to be sponsored by Sleeping Bee Quilt. That's interesting. You would you would have a, an aesthetic award because the reality is some of these these do not grow perfectly symmetrically, do they, Jeff? They get kind of wonky and lopsided looking. They're not really picture perfect, are they? That's correct, and that's what's that's the challenge with this award. So the pumpkin has to be 
a beautiful shape, great orange color, and over 500 pounds. And that's a pretty tall order. You talked about the seeds uh, and the fact that it is a very popular Canadian hobby. Is there, an, is there a huge price difference? For example, if you want to do, try growing giant pumpkins and you wanted to buy some seeds, are they super expensive? On the top end, if you're talking uh, record-breaking seeds, like the previous world record pumpkin, uh, he pulled about 100, uh, sorry, 1,000 seeds out of that pumpkin, and, and uh, they were selling for upwards of $700 each, and he sold out of seeds. Now, that's a rare a rarity. Uh, the seed that I grew this year was uh, from a pumpkin grown in 2014. It was a 2,008-pound pumpkin, and I paid $50 for those seeds, which is pretty standard price for that size. However, with our partnership with uh, Urban Roots Garden Market this year, I've agreed to give them all of the seeds to Neptune in an effort to try and uh, raise awareness and bring people into the hobby, and they're going to be marketing them through their locations next spring. So if anyone's interested in growing, here's your opportunity. Wow, because and I hadn't even thought about that, Jeff, but as a sort of a sidebar bonus, if you will, to the, to persons who win prizes because of the quality and the size of their giant pumpkins, well, of course, they're full of seeds. And of yeah, course, exactly. of course, people are, are going to want to buy them. So there's the bonus. After all of that work and all those months, and uh, you get to uh, sell the seeds at the end of the day. And there's a buck or two in that. Yep, absolutely. And we're going to be eagerly watching because last Sunday the world record was broken uh, in just outside of Florence, Italy. Uh, Stefano Cutrupi grew a pumpkin that was 2,702.8 pounds. Wow. So we're eagerly watching to see what those seeds are going to go for. Oh, my. Of course. Now, you figure today out there at uh, Krauss Berry Farms, uh, there will be the winning uh, giant pumpkin you expect will be in excess of 1,700 pounds. That's correct. Whoa! So, what do you do with it when you're when you when you're done? So afterwards, um, I have a, a relationship with it's about time nursery in Burnaby. So, what we're going to do is we'll, we'll bring those pumpkins and squash over to the nursery, and then on Sunday, October seventeenth, we do a big family fun harvest day and bring in some professional carvers. Our, our guest star carver this year is Jerry Sheena. He's a, a First Nations totem carver. He's fantastic. And he'll transform the pumpkins into something amazing. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. So things get underway at uh, Krauss Berry Farms and Estate Winery in Langley this morning around 11. Uh, the weigh-in starts at 11.30, and it goes on until a winner is declared. So we'll wish you uh, good luck as uh, okay. the, the, the day unrolls. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, it's great to have you with us, Jeff, and uh, good luck to you today. You bet. You have a great day. There you go, friends. If you're looking for something to do, talk about a family-friendly event. Giant pumpkins at Krausberry Farms and Estate Winery in Langley. So earlier this week, Invest Vancouver announced an agreement with Amazon Web Services to develop a career development program in our region that would help people more easily and more seamlessly access training in high-tech careers, which is great news for people who, perhaps during the pandemic, decided to change careers or looking for opportunities for, well, different stuff in those who have not had equitable access to tech skills training. So let's find out more about this. Well, it could be a groundbreaking partnership. Here to talk about it is Katie Fitzmorris, Vice President Collaboration with Invest Vancouver. Ms. Fitzmorris, Katie, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us, Katie. Tell us first and foremost, what is Invest Vancouver, please? Uh, Invest Vancouver is the region's economic development leadership organization provided through the Metro Vancouver Regional District. 
And we exist in order to position the region for success in our rapidly changing global economy. So our two focuses as a regional economic development leadership organization are to increase the overall prosperity, but also more broadly, the shared prosperity throughout our region. And and, and this is in a region where we know our economy is becoming increasingly knowledge intensive, Mm -hmm. as well as technologically specialized. So again, uh, this uh, this deal. Let's talk a little bit about the arrangement with Amazon, and this just really does extend Vancouver's growing reputation as a tech hub again, doesn't it? Absolutely, and we know there's there's so much happening in the uh, tech space in our region. We have thousands of firms, including an ever growing number of tech unicorns. I think the count is up to 10. I'm losing track. And this deal with Amazon and our our work to advance this initiative with them, the heart of this is really about increasing accessibility as well as scaling the tech jobs available in our region, because we know that it's through this education and through investing in our people that we're best preparing them to take advantage and seize the opportunities inherent in this transition to a digital economy. Sure. Let's talk about the nuts and bolts, if you don't mind, for a minute, Katie. What's Amazon committed to doing here? Are they going to open a facility that uh, will accommodate that career uh, development program that, that we spoke of? Uh, The partnership with Amazon Web Services is really about um, providing access to training and providing a clear line of sight for learners to um, complete training and then get linked with jobs. So Amazon Web Services education programming will be providing things like job skills mapping for relevant cloud-based jobs, as well as professional development for educators, curriculum collaboration, and AWS account credits for students. But the real heart of this program is really about connecting and mapping all the amazing things that are happening in this space already. So we know that uh, a learner right now uh, can get amazing education through uh, tech education opportunities already provided in our region. So it's about increasing accessibility to those existing opportunities but also, and this is very important, but also increasing accessibility for those learners who do not have early access. We know this pandemic has been really hard, and many of the people in our region have been left behind. Yep. And in order to support those people that might not have that easy, direct access, we're looking at ways that we can make that step into tech careers accessible to them. And it needs to be accessible, it needs to be affordable, attractive, and achievable. And by pulling on those elements and helping those individuals get into these tech careers, that could be a real lifeline. Mm-hmm. That could be that could be transformative. Uh, so that is really the intent and the heart of where we're, we're coming from with this program. Sure. What kind of turnaround are we looking at here, Katie? In other words, uh, with, now that Amazon Web Services has agreed to partner with Invest Vancouver, uh, when can learners in this part of the world expect to have access to those to that portal and that learning uh, platform? The collaboration with Amazon Web Services uh, is currently underway. Okay. And so learners can access the investvancouver.ca website to learn more about when programming will become available. A number of uh, programs are already available and accessible directly through Amazon Web Services right now. And the education program, what we're trying to do through this is really prepare our learners uh, and set them up for success in this economy that we know is in a state of transition right now. Sure. Unlike other economic shifts that have happened in the region, this economic transitioning transition is happening 
incredibly rapidly. And that requires our skills to shift in accordance. We know labor is getting dislocated through this transition. So when we set up these programs, we're looking at mechanisms that, we, that we'll be able to use to make our shift in education very agile so that as learners are getting access to tech education, they're not only getting linked to tech careers, but also that the education will adapt in a way that they're getting those skills that are most in demand by employers right now. Indeed. We're talking with Katie Fitzmorris, Vice President Collaboration with Invest Vancouver, about a new partnership agreement with Amazon Web Services, one of many. And you talk about the changes that are going on in the economy and the fact that, and you also alluded to, a labor shortage. And you're bang on with both of those things, Katie. And a lot of the labor shortage is caused by people who have gone away from, or in many cases, unfortunately, businesses that have literally vanished uh, because of the pandemic and, and, and the, the fallout from that. And a lot of those people don't plan to return to that business. They've, they've moved on and in many cases are advancing themselves by uh, learning to code and, and various other tech attributes they're acquiring. Absolutely. And if I may, I'll just take a step back to talk about not where our economy is going, but where our economy uh, has come from. So from a historical perspective, in about the 18th century, we had an agricultural-based economy. And during this time, farmers were working in the fields and they were um, plowing. And when new technology came on and a shift began to a production-centric economy, what happened was those farmers transitioned uh, from their labor-intensive jobs in the village into labor-intensive jobs in factories. And that shift happened over about 250 years, and that skill shift was quite similar, actually. So from us as an economic development leadership organization, that's a really interesting note. And when we look at the transition that's currently going on right now, the transition to a digital economy, it's happening in about 50 years. And that transition um, is very dissimilar to the jobs that that people may have had. Mm -hmm. So when we look at in the past 50 years, the change that workers have had to undergo, the list that is required to train those workers is significant. Uh, and a lot of education is required. And it's through the education that we'll be able to best prepare our workers to get access to those jobs that are going to be well paid. So when it comes to not only taking into account the tough transition that is happening right now, you wear on the pandemic when we're seeing even an increase in the rapidity of this change. We need to do even more to ensure that we are supporting those members of our economy who are getting left behind. Yeah, it's an interesting highlight uh, that you've drawn to the Industrial Revolution taking 250 years, the Digital Revolution taking less than 50. And that just just a little pressure associated with that kind of compressed time frame in which such monumental change has occurred. Well, certainly. And if you think back 50 years ago, an individual could have graduated from high school and they very well could have got a job that paid not only to support their own livelihoods, but also the livelihoods of their family. Sure. In today's time, graduating from high school without any form of um, degree or certification you may not be setting yourself up for success if you're not considering additional steps to take. So we're really excited about this agreement in principle with Amazon uh, and to support more broadly investment in education because we're hoping that by 
increasing the literacy at which people are able to um, access digital skills and speak that language, we're hoping they'll be more likely to be able to quickly access those jobs that are going to provide well-paying salaries as well as be future-proof. In the past, milestone events like Expo 86 and the 2010 Olympics put our town on the map, attracting outside attention in a way that had unintended consequences, such as increased unaffordability. Invest Vancouver is a service of the Metro Vancouver Regional District, and it has the aim of propelling our economy forward to the benefit of people who actually live here. It aims to attract new businesses to the region and expand our global connection in a way that prioritizes increased economic prosperity of all people within the region. Katie Fitzmorris is with us this morning. Katie is Vice President Collaboration with Invest Vancouver. When did this Invest Vancouver get put together? How long has the uh, outfit been uh, a thing, Katie? Uh, Invest Vancouver has really picked up steam in the last year, and we've met since that time with over 30 different leaders across our region to help inform and direct our strategic priorities as an economic development leadership organization. And with that, the four priorities that we're seeking to advance are investing in our people, uh, enhancing collaboration, building capacity in our key industries that we know are thriving in our region, and increasing our global connectedness, all with the intent of increasing strategic investment in our region. So what challenges do we face Uh, perhaps that aren't being experienced by others elsewhere. Are are there any unique regional challenges that we here in Metro Vancouver face? Of course, of course there are, and and we hear them. And these types of challenges keep me up at night. The one that will come to mind uh, for you and all of your listeners is around housing affordability. Uh, That's a huge issue, and that's something we're grappling with, and that's just one of the challenges. Other challenges that we have, and these are not unique to us, but they compound a pre-existing significant issue, uh, is the fact that we have so many small to medium-sized enterprises in our region and few large corporate headquarters. So as an economic development leadership organization, the fact that we have few Uh, headquarters here is a really significant concern because what this means when we attract companies to our region that aren't headquarters the first thing they're going to do is hire a large number of employees and those great valuable talented employees from our region those are people that could otherwise have been starting their own businesses and so the value that they add to their hard work those royalties will actually fly back to wherever that headquarter is located be it in new york or in la so we really are concentrated about ways that we can not only enhance the ecosystem that supports our great and growing clusters in our region, but also to help attract that internal investment. And we also know that there's a lack of well-paying jobs in our region uh, as we um, are preparing our workforce for this rapid transition to the digital economy Mm -hmm. Uh, at the same time i'm sorry in this in the short term however we are we're down in almost every uh, sector of the economy with respect to available talent and labor we are the, the the labor pool is pretty shallow these days katie absolutely and invest 
at Invest Vancouver, we take the view that we need to be really mindful about what we ought to do as well as what we not ought to do. Okay. And one of the things that we want to do is to really build on our strengths. So we're encouraging investment in our people in areas that we know the jobs are going to result in well-paying careers uh, that are set to grow in the future. So that's areas like life sciences and agri-tech and apparel in uh, digital entertainment in the green economy, high tech, transportation. And one thing that flows amongst all of those different key industries is tech. So by investing in tech education, we're really setting our citizens up for success, as well as doing our work to create an innovative ecosystem that will attract business. Because we know that capital follows talent. So by really increasing in a meaningful way the sophistication and and increasing deep talent pools, that is going to serve all of us well. And we talked earlier about uh, the fact that Vancouver has developed quite a reputation as a tech hub as more and more companies uh, come to our city and open up branch plants, if if not uh, uh, bigger operations. This partnership with Amazon Web Services, for example, to uh, create more access to training in high tech careers. This is all about upskilling and retraining the existing workforce, Katie. Um, This is this is critical uh, to have uh, in terms of access. How much uh, marketing is going to be involved in terms of getting the word out to people who, and I I appreciate the fact that there are people already actively involved in retraining or upskilling themselves, but how do you get the word out about this new stuff? You're absolutely right that marketing is going to be a key component of what we're doing because we need people in our communities to know about the jobs that are available Mm -hmm. and to really strongly communicate that there's a clear line of sight between entry into these tech training programs as well as jobs. And when I think about how we access um, and communicate with our, our stakeholders and our partners in this space, one of the things that really comes to mind for me is that we're trying to communicate a kind of complicated message because people might not know a lot about the the types of tech careers that are available True. and they're very busy. Like if I think, for example, about a single dad who is, or he already has a full-time job, he might be concerned that aspects of his job might be automated in the future. Mm-hmm. Perhaps not. He's likely busy dealing with daycare pickup and drop-off. If he is looking to reskill or upskill or change careers, that education that he's going to get access to, it is not going to be a four-year degree diploma, sure. likely, that is in a static location. Uh, the work that we're doing to provide education programming, it needs to be um, in line with 21st century realities. We need to be able to create education that is easily accessible, that is convenient, that might be um, available on demand. It might look like a micro-credential or a stackable certificate. These types of um, training mechanisms will be critical to create and to clearly communicate uh, to other people in our community in order to give them access to well-paying jobs that are going to create this rich ecosystem uh, that is going to increase prosperity for all in our region. Well, it's also going to be more attractive to people who are, who, more, uh, we talk about the, the companies uh, and Microsoft is in our building or right next door to us and they've uh, sunk a buck or two into being here as have many, many tech companies. And as we create a more educated 
educated, more tech-savvy workforce, it really be- makes us that much more attractive to those companies who see Vancouver as a possibility. That's exactly right. So there's a there's a mutual benefit, not only for the learner, but for our economy at large. And it's through education that we're able to enhance our productive advantages that we need in order to attract investment. Mm -hmm. So given that we know capital follows labor, that means for our region to be successful, we need to consider our productive advantages across all of our industries. And key factors include our education and our skills training, as well as consideration for our knowledge spillovers. So to your point, if Microsoft is able to train up and reskill and advance their workforce, that benefits everyone around them. Mm -hmm. Interesting stuff. So, Katie, you mentioned the website earlier. How about the address, please? Because people are going to want to know a lot more about this. It's an exciting prospect. And a lot of people are on the cusp of making some significant changes in their lives. And a lot of those changes involve tech. So direct us to your website, please, where we can learn more about this. It's at investvancouver.ca investvancouver.ca. This is great stuff. Katie, thanks very much for uh, for joining us this morning. Very good stuff, and, and keep up the good work. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure entirely. There's Katie Fitzmorris, who is Vice President Collaboration with Invest Vancouver. Check them out, investvancouver.ca. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.